Headliner Radio, the creative voice. Well, I'm delighted to welcome film composer Dominic Scherer, who is fresh from creating the score for the Serpent hit series. that's available to watch on both the BBC and Netflix now depending on where you are is that right Dominic? That's right from uh, Good Friday 2nd of April it will be yeah. on uh, worldwide on Netflix. Amazing um, and if you're in the UK it's the BBC iPlayer. That's right. Yeah amazing. Um, yeah welcome to the podcast how are you doing? Thank you thank you for having me. Um, yeah so just to start off do you mind sort of introducing yourself how you got into music you're from Switzerland originally is that right? Yeah, that's right. I came over when I was about twenty to to the UK, um, and I, you know, I before I'd been, I've, I've sort of always wanted to score. Really, um, it just you know at that time there wasn't really any films to score, so I came to film school in London, and and you know there was definitely plenty of films that I could score there. So. It's, so that's one of, one of the reasons why I ended up here. Yeah, I this common question I have for film composers because um, this question of where you need to be. I wonder if that's gradually changed because, of course, I think at one point it felt like you had to be in California or Hollywood, right? But obviously, your um, proof you can do it in London. But did you feel like you you wouldn't really have been able to get much success in Switzerland? I guess. Um, you know, potentially. Now it's it's possible, um, and and maybe even at the time it was possible. But I I was I guess kind of attracted by um, you know some of the films that are being made here, and 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 you know things are on a slightly bigger scale here, really than than they they put be potentially there. You know, so I I think there isn't a lot of kind of mainstream production going on there and mm. um, which film school did you go to sorry i went to um at the time it was called london college of printing and i think it's and it's part of the you know london university of the arts mm. yeah amazing and did i see you're based in brick lane my studio is there but um i haven't been i haven't worked from there for a year now i'm working from home because of of covid so um and it's you know it's quite cozy at home i, I don't live far from there i'm i'm uh, you know in sort of shortage area um as yeah. well um but uh yeah so i can't wait to be back at my studio again yeah that's great that's kind of the creative hub of london these days isn't it shortage and brick lane um and yeah, I mean, so what would you say would be a kind of, would you call it the breakthrough moment in your career? Perhaps was there one particular film project or where you felt like it really started taking off? Um, no, I think it was a gradual thing. You know, it's sort of, you also, you kind of learn as you go along as well. You know, I was doing, scoring a lot of short films and then, 
they just got longer and bigger and i i started to you know initially it was sort of string quartet um scores and then i could record orchestra for some of them and then i had the first feature film it was called appetite um it was a you know art house film and i i had the budget for an orchestra on that one and then you know things sort of gradually grew i i couldn't really say there was a sort of single breakthrough project yeah would you say that's a very healthy way for composers wanting to do what you're doing that's probably a very good way of approaching it rather than thinking looking out for this one moment it's more of a a steady gradual climb isn't it, it sounds like yeah and also i think you know you just keep on doing um you know writing and producing recording and and because you know you get better each time you do it and and uh, you you get to try out new things you know so you may be doing some films that are you know low budget and then maybe others are more you know they pay the bills maybe and and so um but i think it's just a good idea to carry on doing mm. And obviously, with you being in London, you've you've actually ended up working with the BBC quite a few times, haven't you? Which is brilliant. Obviously, the BBC is so highly regarded around the world, not just in the UK. That must be amazing for you to have worked with the BBC a few times. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, well, I guess you know, if you're doing that sort of um, those kind of high-end drama productions, like I do, you know, it's, it's basically either BBC or ITV, or now, you know, Netflix or Amazon Studios, really. And often it is a combination of them, you know, uh, most of the time. I mean, I did, I guess for a long time, I did years of ITV as well, you know, like mm-hmm. Miss Marple and things like that, you know. And then and then something like The Serpent is actually, you know, it's made by a mammoth screen that, is owned by ITV for BBC and for Netflix. So it's all, it, hmm. it all, all that often hangs together anyway. Yeah, so they all kind of cross over in a crazy way. That's interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, so yeah, what was your first BBC projects? Obviously, the ones that stand out would probably be like Ripper Street, Baptiste, and um, of course, now The Serpent. Um, I guess, so, yeah, you know, I would have to check my, my CV. Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't. Tell you, I, I know that Ripper Street definitely was a BBC, but um, there would would have been probably productions before that as well. Um, I'm mm. sure there were. So it you know it kind of just sort of starts gradually these these things, and often you know <clears throat> it's more like actually the the people you are working with, the production companies, because it's rare to work directly for the BBC. So I, I never really have much to do with the BBC themselves. Um, it's the production company and their, you know, execs, executives that I'm dealing with uh, very rarely, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> very rarely with the BBC directly. No, yeah, of course, because you're, at the end of the day, you're a freelance composer, aren't you? You're not sort of owned by ITV or BBC or Netflix or... Yeah, yeah, but also, you know, the, those shows are made by a production company yeah. that's who are commissioned by BBC or Netflix. Yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely, yeah. Of course, of course, the production companies make it, and they kind of shop around to see who wants to actually screen the program. Don't they? I guess that's how it works. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's 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 how you know they they pitch their ideas and then they get commissioned. Hmm. And did you mention? So was it more or less always your ambition to do this, or were you interested in other genres earlier on as a younger person, or? Um, other, you mean other professions or other? Yeah, or just other types uh, of music. I was here. Yeah. Oh, I, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of music. I, I also did, you know, pop music for, or I was sort of, I had a kind of avant-garde band. I want, mm-hmm. and then I, I was writing opera as well. So, and, you know, two of those I sort of turned into films, you know, they, they were written for the screen so i was mm. quite keen for a while to take the take opera kind of further and and i still have projects like that in development and um or a kind of you know singing music driven <clears throat> type film um that <clears throat> is is not really you know it's not like scoring but it's a sort of projects in its own right so so i am and then you know i do um soundtrack for live inst- um art installation as well so what kind of fine art is another thing i'm interested in so um and then um yeah as i said you know i was sort of you know touring for a while as well with the show so you know different things yeah, I suppose that's the dream for, for <coughs> film composers, right? To do this huge variety of projects and not because sometimes is there a danger of being pigeonholed into maybe one genre of TV or film? It certainly seems that way for some composers. So it's great that you get to do these different projects. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, it, it does happen that you know when when you do one thing um, and that people know it well, then people do start to kind of type cost you a little bit you know so then sometimes it can be hard to cross borders um but uh you know so so for example now i i i like i haven't actually sort of scored comedy in a while or something you know so and i was like oh you know that could be quite fun again because i sort of tend to do quite serious stuff now you know people have have sort of almost forgotten that i can be quite fun as well you know so yeah no of course um so yeah with the serpent i be great to hear um, how you became initially involved in the project. Um, I'd worked with Tom Shankland, the lead director on The Serpent, before on um, several shows. He was lead director on Ripper Street. He was doing The Missing, um, and we did more recently The City and the City together. So he already, you know, years ago, he told me about it because it was kind of um, a story that went around his head um and he was he was keen to find a way to adapt it for the screen so um so in a way came sort of from working with him so and you know there was some good um preparation time really because of that you know because i was quite early on on board with on this project you know so so i could um start writing themes before they even started shooting yeah that that must be so helpful to be given that time and space 
Um, did you find that really beneficial? <coughs> um, yeah. Um, well, I often work this way uh, now, and it's um, it's kind of more satisfying this way because also, you know, when you're finally in post-production, time is always really, really tight, and it's good to take some of the pressure off and have your main themes written, you know, so you're kind of good to go in those hectic few final few weeks of post-production um but also i quite like just working with the script and without any kind of filmed picture yet you know it's i think it sort of forces you to work with the core of the story and the plot um and and so then when you when i have then some sketches down and I can then send those to the cutting room and they can already you know use some of the music while they're kind of putting together the, the the cut so they don't have to use other music you know in in the cutting room what normally happens is they use what's called temp music you know, which is just music that kind of sits there and then is is in, eventually replaced again but just so they've got some music to show the cut with and find a rhythm, etc. You know, but it 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 can cause problems for a composer because everyone gets used to this so-called temp music, and then it can be quite difficult not to get too distracted and over influenced by this music. So I much prefer if the temp music is my own music, and and the production prefers that as well because then. It allows us to be a little bit bolder as well, you know, because you can do some some interesting things that then, you know, when people watch it a second time, they go like, oh, yeah, no, that is actually quite interesting and it's quite bold. So so I, I, I try to work like that most of the time now. Yeah, no, the dreaded tent music reminds me of, mm. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of John Murphy on the film Kick-Ass, where they used... One of well, it was actually John Murphy's own music, but they um, actually ended up deciding to use that temp track from an earlier film, even though he was begging them to let him do something new. And it just shows uh, yeah. that the directors can get so attached to the music they've placed temporarily. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Temp love, you yeah. know, it's a big, uh, it's a big thing. And um, yes, it, it does happen. You know, like as with in the John Murphy example, um, it has happened to me as well that you know I had some of my own from you know music on there from previous projects and so the producers go like oh it's okay because it's yours you know you can do that again can't you and i go like well yeah i tried but <laughs> i just can't i can't get it as good as the first time you know so if it's just as soon as you're trying to imitate something you know it's it, it's only ever it's it's never going to it's never going to be better than than what you're imitating mm. you know it's, it will always be a little bit worse or much worse you know yes almost the sense that you're just being asked to copy and paste whatever's there yeah really yeah. with slight differences and yeah and this yeah. yeah and you often hear in perhaps the more big blockbuster hollywood films this is why you get sometimes slightly generic film music oh yeah I, I i yes i i can often hear exactly what the temp was yeah. because i uh, because 
partly because I've probably had the same tempo myself yeah. that I had to kind of, you know, try and redo somehow. So because they're often kind of the same cues that go around these cutting rooms that everyone is using uh, and, and, and that are fashionable for a few years' time. And, and so you start to, to know those quite well. I've even yeah, I mean, seen some productions. Yeah. I, I heard that um, for a while, um, my soundtrack to The Missing so apparently became the kind of temp du jour in, in LA. And, um, and I have seen some um, shows where I thought, God, this is like my track. That's strange. And so they, they must have made, I mean, you know, I don't know. They met, but I, my suspicion was that they used um, mm. some cues of mine, you know, as temp. So. Yeah, well, I guess at least that's quite a nice compliment for you in a way. Um, I mean, I wouldn't know this for sure, but I'm guessing Hans Zimmer probably gets used all the time. At least it sounds that way from some of the music you hear in film. From Temp, yeah, temp, yes, yes, I've had Hans Zimmer, you know, we also, well, partly because also Hans Zimmer and, you know, the remote control outfit, they do so much. So just by sheer numbers you know they're they're likely to end up in in, and and also yeah it's for certain kind of production it's it it, it's a sort of it's a route to go because it's immediately quite a sort of large sound Mm. no so that's great that you got to do it that way in fact i don't hear that too often about composers starting to create before anything's been filmed but are you saying you get to do that fairly often in your career? And do you know of other composers getting that? Yeah. Um, well, I, I I get it now. Um, when I, you know, like maybe ten years ago or or longer ago, um, or early in earlier in my career, I didn't have the luxury of doing that because it's partly because, you know, you are not like the first on their list to do the job, you know, uh, at that time, you know, they call whatever, you know, they try with Hans Zimmer and then try this and then try that person. And then after trying 50 people, then the last person left is this Dominic Scherer guy who then ends up doing it by then. Mm -hmm. But by then, you know, there is only like three weeks to do the whole thing. So, um, so, so that's why it kind of ended up like this. And now I, I, I'm now in the position where sort of people think of me first, you know, which is great. So, so then, which means, you know, I can get on um, early enough with these, but I mean, it's not necessarily a new concept, you know? Um, I mean, famously, so, you know, on the spaghetti Westerns, you know, Morricone and with Sergio Leone, you know, I think famously so on um, Once Upon a Planet, once upon a time in the West, they played some of those themes on big on a big PA on the, on the set, and uh, mm. you know for the actors or for and for everyone to get the vibe of the scene. So, and I'm sure it's happened in in other instances as well. Yeah, so it seems like the best advice is to get a good friendship with a director, going so they're going to completely respect your process and. Um... Yeah, the the director or maybe the producers or you know, so I'm I'm just um working on another show where I've previously worked with the, the writers, stroke, um producers and um so that 
yeah, it's it, it can be director or, or 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 other people on the production as well that you have you you build up this um, kind of um, the, the relationship of trust with. Mm. Yeah, and as you mentioned, there's that sort of worst case scenario. It happens quite often, doesn't it, where a film the director tries a few composers and it doesn't work out, and then they bring someone in at the very last minute. And you're just doing these horrendously long really long hours and it's just with hardly any time and it's that's not really fertile ground for creativity really at all is it yeah i mean i think it's yeah not not necessarily i mean not all the time i think it's possible to do that some of the time because you know as long as you have some projects where you can play around a little bit you have um time to uh try some new things and then to discard them and to to yeah just to to, just to kind of go more in depth and then you know you can you actually developing new things and new ways of of doing it then if you have then a project where there is only three weeks to do it um you you've kind of you can draw from those periods where you've had time to experiment, you know, so you can maybe pull it off because you've had your playing time as well. If you had, if you had to do rush everything all the time, I think that would get frustrating because then you just sort of do only what, what you know is going to work. You, you can't um, take any chances, you know, but I, I like to, um, if I can, you know, to try out some things that may work or they may not, you know. So, but th- th- I think that's more fun. No, yeah, fantastic. Um, and would you mind just talking us through kind of the synopsis of the serpent, in case anyone listening hasn't come across the show? I know loads of people have and have probably seen it already, but um, yeah, it'd be great it's, to hear, in your words, the storyline. It's the story of. Um, Charles Subraj, who was a con man and a serial killer, who was operating in Southeast Asia mostly in the nineteen, in the early to mid nineteen seventies, and um, he was a kind of interesting person because he sort of charmed people into staying with him in his house in um, Bangkok, and it, it, it was a kind of meeting place quite bohemian but in the end you know he killed some of them On the other side, there is um, a Dutch diplomat, Herman Knittenberg, who became aware that two Dutch nationals 
were missing, and he started to gradually suspect that they were murdered and then start to track down um, Charles Sobrage. And so it became a kind of very long cat-and-mouse game between those two, and it stretched into the 1990s. And it stretches... Also, then some of it plays in Kathmandu in Nepal and then in India as well. Um, Charles Sobrage escaped the law... On on, me, in, on many occasions, and it was very hard to bring him to justice. Yeah, no, amazing. And of course, it stars Tahar Rahim and Jenna Coleman. It really seems like um, the character of Charles, is he kind of the, the heart of the whole thing? And did you have to kind of depict that musically? I guess so. Or he was the story, you know. I, I think mm. they are all so... Um, you know the the three key people are Charles Sobrage, um, Herman Crickenberg, and and then also Marianne um, uh, 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 Leclerc, who is um, was his his wife or his um, his girlfriend, Charles' girlfriend, who was kind of uh, getting sucked into this um, vicious um, circle of of crime really so um and and but but yeah i think the 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 kind of the drive the driving force in it was i guess this um the crimes and the drive to bring him to justice yeah no amazing um i understand you didn't want to be sort of too sensationalist in the score i guess that's a big challenge with any project like this is um i guess poor film music is kind of the music where it's sort of trying to manipulate your emotions too much or being too heavy-handed and i'll feel sad here and feel happy there is it sort of a case of trying to yeah not make the music too forceful in that sense do you find um yeah and but also um you know we could there there was a sort of slight nod to genre and sort of 70s almost a sort of exploitation movie at, at the same time but not really to make it more sensationalist but to have a sort of um to so it's kind of grounded a little bit in in a in a kind of form you know and it felt like appropriate for this project and and strangely enough it's sort of it, you know, it gave it a kind of the sort of formality that 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 was sort of re- respectful to the story as well. Um, but yes, I mean, in terms of, I mean, you know, it's it's I, interesting. I hear this thing of um, you know manipulation quite a lot, and I, I mean, you know, everything is a little bit. A kind of manipulation in in these shows, you know, because mm-hmm. it's it's drama, you know, it's it's const- it's completely constructed, really. Um, so you do everything to to to. Yes, people are, you know, it's not it's not real. So so everything is kind of steered in, in a direction. But I mean, what you what you want is still people have to kind of make up their own 
mind about this, of course. But but there is, you know, I think there there is. I I mean, I I'd have to admit there is there is a certain degree of manipulation there, yes, and it's it's intentional, yes. No, no, of course, yeah. No, I just, I mean, I suppose when it's a whole series and it's sort of a character study, I guess if you gave Charles sort of cheesy bad guy music, that could be a huge. <laughs> problem really yeah. hinder the success yeah, yeah. no i try and do gro- groovy bad guy music yeah <laughs> it might work for darth Vader having the low horns in a sort of film yeah. sci-fi setting but, yeah. um yeah I mean, how did you approach would you did you give him a, a sort of a, a character theme or was it more of sort of developing music for him throughout the show or yeah how did you approach his character in <clears throat> it's 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 not so much his character because also i don't really want to um work with like a a theme per character because it it often doesn't work because sooner or later you know those characters are going to meet and what what are you going to do then and mix up the themes and blah blah you know so it, and it's more uh, uh, the sort of story strands that I want to score and and because this you know so much is about Charles in this series you couldn't just have like one theme but it's sort of certain aspects of his his psyche that that have got themes but they're often potentially themes that are played also when um when we've got um you know the the dutch diplomat as well because he is sort of um trying to track him down etc so so in a way it makes sense to hear the same theme but maybe in a slightly different arrangement when we have the dutch guy you know so for example you know one one of the themes because you know the the whole thing is called the serpent because um they refer to charles sobraj as the serpent in at at the time as well um a bit like you know Jack the Ripper, blah blah. You know, so it's he's the serpent, and so I wanted to have a sort of snake-like slitheriness to one of the themes, at least. Oh, yeah, of course. And um, and and when, so one of them was was essentially the, so that became like the title music as well, and it's called State of Flux, which is also the idea that you know the whole period at the time was kind of a little bit in turmoil you know it's sort of the that and so um and so i i it has a kind of there is a sort of instability to that theme i don't know you i can play that could you hear me play the piano or something no uh actually i can't record at the same time so let me just see if i can play oh yeah you can ah yeah yeah i can hear that Ah, uh, yeah. So, um, so if you know that the sort of tile music is a bit like this kind of little arpeggio, you know that. So it's a bit like a little snake, you know, that sort of slithers around, mm. and then and then it sort of does this kind of descending. So it's kind of like just something you you can never quite gra- um, sort of 
you know, put your hand on and, and it has a sort of, yeah, it kind of slithers away all the time and harmonically it goes somewhere um, where you, that you can't quite um, predict, you know. So um, so that's one of the, 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 the themes. And then we have another that's more his sort of cooler side that's sort of charmed everyone and then i sort of call it gem dealers um and it's you know where because he he often um posed as a as a gem dealer you know to people so and that's more a kind of um i don't know i can should you, does it make sense if i play some stuff like to you like that mm. on the piano yeah no yeah of course, of course. yeah um, so so it's sort of so so it's sort of again it's got this kind of It again has this kind of descending thing, but at the same time, it's got these kind of groovy bass lines that sort of start at the bottom, which are more like. So it's so that so we've got. Um, and and those are more a kind of they're more kind of played as a sort of large ensemble seventies funk type thing, you know. So it's and then and then I've got themes for um, the whole investigation, um, etc. You know. So it's yeah, it's, it's it's nice to have the kind of eight hours of 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 playground to get these themes to work together. Yeah, um, and that lovely sort of descending serpent motif you played the first time. If I'm not mistaken, do you hear that in quite a few different forms, different instrumentation throughout the score? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. It. The, and also, I mean, it doesn't come back all the time, but when it does come back, you know that it's an important juncture in the story you know it's an important thing it's i mean it's quite often you know in in these series when when the main theme returns it's so you always know that this is kind of an important moment you know so so it's nice to kind of or to start a scene and with a tune and then it kind of starts to drift into that that main theme somehow and people go like, aha, okay, this is where it's going, you know? So, so it just feels more um, co- cohesive, you know, if you kind of work that in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you touched on the fact that some of the shows in the 1970s, um, could you talk about how that influenced your approach and yeah, the music and the show itself, I suppose? Or? Yeah, I, I guess it less so, shows of the 70s but you know just music that that was around then that was made then and and also music that was made in the late 60s because that was an influence as well because um those the the people in the series you know they're they're hippies they are kind of influenced by, by the you know flower power generation they're in search of of spirituality in in the east in in asia so so they they kind of listen a little bit to kind of hippie music as well so there is some of that influence in there and then i wanted to kind of have a less cliched reference 
to the seventies, you know, le- maybe not a sort of just sort of funky wava guitars and and stuff, you know, but to find influences that are kind of more modern sounding or were modern sounding then and maybe are still modern sounding now, you know, like um, the sort of Steve Reich and Philip Glass, you know, that those early ensembles that they recorded at the time. Um, and um, there was early, it was the days of early synthesis, you know, so there was a lot of some interesting synthesizer sounds. There was quite a lot of kind of, so so the production, it was Tom Shankland plus the writers, they put together a Spotify playlist while they were writing this um which they copied me in on and and it became it was when I got it it was thirty seven hours long so um I'm not sure I ever listened to the whole uh playlist or i may may have scanned through it but but it was you know there was definitely some interesting stuff in there that I'd never heard of um so it was all um material from the period um so yeah, so the idea was to to you know have an, a modern sounding soundtrack, but with a nod to the seventies. Yeah, because you mentioned Philip Glass and Steve uh, Reich, but they do I understand that you were interested in, at that time? Were they kind of working with sort of Thai instruments and that sort of thing? It just so happened that the show is set in that part of the world in Southeast Asia. So was that something you're particularly interested in? Yeah, I, I, yes. I mean, we definitely wanted to give it a kind of exotic um, touch, or more than a touch, you know, an exotic feel. The whole thing, you know, so it's not like something you'd have in America or in Europe, but you know, it's definitely there. And um, yeah, so I mean, it, uh, Steve Reich, you know, in particular, he he was interested in gamelan, gamelan music, so and. I think not so much necessarily the instruments, but um, you know the, the way it's constructed. And but then there are a lot of interesting mallet instruments there. So I went to Bangkok. I, I was recording in Bangkok for a few weeks for the Serpent because also that that's where the production was shot mostly, like um, eighty-five, ninety percent. Um, so it was nice to be there anyway around production and 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 meet up with everyone but also um i was keen to 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 use some of the the players there and uh, to to find interesting sounds um for our show so i i i wasn't really in uh, you know into kind of creating authentic time music or something like that because this is a thriller after it is a modern thriller you know so but you know it was interesting colors to use in mm. in in the soundtrack so um so i recorded um i had i had a i, I camped out in um some studios for a while and had this great ensemble of percussionists um and and I would r- write some real thriller tracks, really. That then we we played, you know. And I kind of 
taught them and and it was great because for them it was a very non-traditional thing of course to be playing on those instruments but they were really into it about Tonto, I understand you used the modular synthesizer from the 70s, because obviously the 70s is such an early time in the history of synthesizers, so that's a great reason to include that sort of music in the score as well. Yeah, um, so I didn't use Tonto itself. Um, I mean, so Tonto is a huge modular synthesizer, potentially the biggest ever Mm. built, um, and it was put together in the early 70s. And um, But um, the guys who put it together, they also had their own band, the Tonto's Expand, Explode, Expanding Head Band, I think they were called, um, or Exploding Head Band. Mm. And, um, and it was quite, you know, some of it is a bit kind of synth prog rock. Some of it is, is really quite interesting um, experimental um, material, but the sounds are very interesting, and it's sounds that you don't really necessarily hear now. Even though, of course, there is a lot of music made on modular now, probably possibly more than ever. Um, but but nothing ever really quite sounded like the Tonto. So I had a synth programmer who um, who shared the same um, technician who also serviced Tonto. Um, so. Then he then managed to cr- recreate some of those patches um, for mm. me that we could use on the serpent, and 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 uh, and I think it 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 kind of took the soundtrack into um, a dimension that you didn't quite expect, you know. So um, and the, and it, it had a sort of um, strange and uh dangerous um outlook you know in those sounds yeah amazing um yeah i've started becoming a bit interested in modular synths it seems like they're very abstract to me because it i'm so used to keyboards obviously since having piano keys that that seems much more straightforward i wouldn't even know where to start with a modular synth like they seem so abstract to me do you have much experience Yourself using those kind of synthesizers? No, no. I mean, I use I well essentially because I sort of patch my synths here together um, as well. And and yes, I mean it's 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 true. It's the best is to think of it without necessarily having a keyboard. And I it's interesting. I, I saw a um, a video about Bob Robert Moog. Um, recently and it was um he didn't even think of adding a keyboard you know initially mm. to to the first 
since he built it was but he was told i think by the his business partners or you know we sh- we should really and it was almost going against the grain for for moog you know to add a keyboard that was it almost sort of brings it down a bit you know to to add the keyboard so uh yeah i mean it's it's good to think of it also you know without you know as not keyboard music yeah because you mentioned Tonto being the largest synth possibly ever, but because I know so little about them, I couldn't even tell you why it would need to be so big and why that'd be better than a really small one. Or yeah, do you understand that sort of aspect? Of yeah, it? well, no. I mean, also you you are you are right. I mean, bigger doesn't make it necessarily better. Yeah. Um. But and and um and uh, but I think it was just sort of to to have these kind of possibilities of 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 mo- you know mod- endless modulation if you want but also to you know have enough oscillators there so you can put together a whole tra- you know run a whole track live you know rather than multi-tracking everything you know and and layering it up you know because then they could sort of play a- an electronic track essentially hear it live you know um you had other other people you know like um wendy carlos at the time you know who did all the switched on bach stuff mm-hmm. you know? so and, and she she just layered it up she 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 only ever did one voice at the time you know and then she had a multi-track recorder and just sort of like, so, so, so she never because, but also it was kind of simpler because you had all that Bach music on on the page, you know. So it was kind of, I guess, a more straightforward. Well, not it wasn't a straightforward pro- process, but it was you you know what the outcome would be, you know. But uh, but I think that that was one of the the reasons why it was at- attractive to be working on something like Tonto because you could. You could hear it all at the same time. I mean, mm. these these kind of things are a little bit easier because now you have the help of technology, uh, you know, digital, um, where you can run loads of stuff live all the time. So it's easier now. But at that time, it must have been revolutionary. No, of course. I mean, I love asking sort of TV and film composers how they feel about sort of digital instruments versus analog instruments because obviously analog has such a charm to it but then i suppose they're not always the most convenient instruments to use when you've got deadlines or the director's asking you to edit something um yeah where do you fall in that kind of i mean when you say analog you mean like analog synthesizers yeah i suppose oh yeah yeah, okay yeah yeah yeah. um yeah i mean you know i i like i like digital um i i like everything digital um i i think also I was when I was young I was probably more excited about digital you know I was inter- interested in sampling and you know at that time you know that the there was the Fairlights and the Synclavier and 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 these early samplers and 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 there was also definitely a sound to them you know that was digital and not analog you know you could hear that it was digital um mm. because there was some slight artifacts you know not so much on the synclavier but on the fairlight for sure and and on the cheaper you know the mirage and stuff you know even more so but i i loved that 
that sound actually and and even now i think i'm i'm potentially you know more almost more interested in in digital also i do like i like um di- digital sounding sounds as well you know and i'm I'm, a, I'm an avid user of um you know uhe zebra which is like a a software synth but it's very deep and 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 it sounds very good and and i i make no attempt in trying to make it sound analog so sometimes i don't quite understand the sort of the, the some people for some people i think the, the analog sort of sounds better than digital so um and that's not really necessarily for me um I do I, I do work with analog synth because it's also you know then if you do work with that then uh, of course you know it, it, it would be inferior to work with an, a digital um emulation of that um mm-hmm. but but um so I do like those sounds but it doesn't mean a sound that is completely digital um is any less good yeah, no, absolutely, of course. Um, yeah, so on that topic, I'd love to just ask a bit about your studio, if I may. Um, yeah, like so, so, for example, your DAW and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Um, so, well, I I work in Logic, um, mm-hmm. like you know, like a lot of people do, yeah. um, and then, but then you're run Pro Tools at the same time, which is quite standard in film music as well. Um, you know, you do all the, a lot of the recording happens in Pro Tools, um, particularly recordings that are outside my own studio. So it's it's the platform for exchanging audio. Um, and then I run, you know, some of the, because, you know, film music has, in a way become more complicated because you know we work in surround we you deliver everything in stems so i used to run a lot of the um, music through kind of chains of analog outboard um goes a little bit what i've just said against you know about <laughs> preferring digital <laughs> but i uh, i i do i do that um, but now, you know, with the, the sort of track counts that we have, um, that's become more difficult because I'd have to have um, hundreds of, uh, you know, racks of of stuff to run it through because I just have to, to deliver too many tracks, really. So, so a lot of it happens in the box. Um, and then, you know, I have, uh, you know, but bunch of synthesizers and then you know instruments lots of instruments to make noise with and i'm a flautist actually really so i use flute for a lot of sound design elements as well um and um uh yeah so studio is is in in brick lane and there is other musicians there as well so it's quite fun and you know feels collaborative and you're not so uh, alone you know um and mm. and it's it's nice to be you know sharing stuff yeah no i've walked past the old truman brewery 
so many times. I didn't realize there were uh, musicians based. There used class. to be quite a lot, you know, less. I've been there quite a long time. Um, so, but there is less. It's more of a business center now. But, um, yeah. but there, you know, there are a few, uh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to the orchestral part of your work, do you use um, sort of libraries to sketch things up? I don't know if maybe they end up in the programs themselves. Do you use like Spitfire audio or stuff like that at all? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't sort of think too much about what I'm using because if I'm using orchestral, then I record it live. Um, so I don't really... Generally, I don't really have so much samples ending up in the final program. So it's so for me, it doesn't matter too much what I'm using. So, but I yes, I'm using Spitfire. I'm, I guess my main sort of Spitfire chamber strings. I use a lot of VSL, Vienna um, for mockups as well, um, and then I use um, some of that Australian library. There. Um, cinematic strings as well mm-hmm. um and um and then yes and i do sometimes leave some of those sounds in 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 there you know maybe quieter and have have the live um recordings more in the foreground you know depending what kind of sound you want or uh if if it's a if, if you need a, a extra bit of weight from the samples Yeah, uh, and with so with like Spitfire and VSL, do you have any particular favorite packs? Do we call them? I suppose any, yeah, anything like that. Yeah, I mean Spitfire. Um, yes, yeah, so I use uh, mainly chamber strings. Really, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. Um, it's more. I'm not so. I find the sort of larger symphonic, you know, strings, for example less um i just find it difficult to use in any production really because it just sort of feels so distant from the film so so basically i always would prefer a kind of smaller ensemble and uh, the precision of of smaller ensembles so spitfire chamber strings is uh and 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 it's kind of that's how it started with me with with spitfire because it was years ago um one of the the guys who run it, Paul Thompson, he, 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 we were working together at the time anyway. And he said, Oh, I'm just sort of, um, putting together a first sample library. And it, it they also called it chamber strings, but it was, I think it was 12 of us who put money into it. Uh, it, this was other people, uh, and Dudley and, you know, people like that. And he, we, mm. I think we each put in sort of two and a half or, Three grand, and they recorded the first library at Air Studios, which, you know, with the players that we knew quite well, and um, and so it was immediately a library I could use really well because it sounded very much like the sort of ensembles I was I was recording anyway because it was exactly the same players using the same instruments. So, um, and I'm still using some of that. You know, it's it's a little bit unrefined by today's standards that that library but it i'm still using it because it's got such a familiar sound amazing oh it's great to hear you're part of the origin story of uh, spitfire that's very cool um are there any other plugins for example reverbs 
delays, that sort of thing that are sort of go-tos in your scores at all? Oh, God, yes. I could go on, but don't get me started because I'd, I'd be going on for two hours or something. Mm. So, But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess um, I'm using mostly exponential audio reverbs, um, partly because they... Well, no, because they sound very good. Um, I have quite, I have a sort of big, complicated template, you know, where I need to run uh, maybe about 40, 50 reverbs, and some of those are in surround, etc. So those um, exponential audio reverbs are really good for that. Um, and then uh, I guess I use um, some of the. Uh, you know the, the isotope um, uh, plugins, and then um, a lot of uh, you know for since you know, as I mentioned, you know the UHE Zebra, and then Diva. I use quite a bit, particularly. I don't know if you're familiar with Diva, but that's a kind of mm-hmm. a, 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 you know an analog emulation synth, but it's um it's a it's I think it sounds very good. And also I had a bit of time last summer when we had all that lockdown because I have I can't have all my synths here because I'm working from home, you know, so I have a more scaled yeah. down setup. So I thought, okay, well, I spent like a week, you know, with the manual and Diva to, to really sort of create my own bank of sounds, you know, which, which uh, and I think that's a great sounding um, software synth. Mm. Oh, wonderful. And then, yeah, finally, any sort of microphones, sound card speakers you'd like to give a shout out to? That'd be amazing to hear as well. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a avid RME user, so I oh, use, great. Um, you know, I have, I don't know how many different RME interfaces. Um, and then I use almost exclusively DAV um, preamps, you know, the, which is the Broadhurst Gardens, which is the deck, mm-hmm. you know, from the the, the design they use at Decca Studios in um, uh, uh, West Hampstead. Um, so, so that's, for me, a sort of great sounding preamps. And then I have a, a, a bigger collection of ships, mics, for almost which I use on almost everything. So <clears throat> these are the kind of you know used for a lot of orchestral recording. Strings sound great <clears throat> on those. And then you know Neumann, Neumann mics. You know I'm I'm speaking right through one right now. Uh, mm-hmm. U87. So cool. amazing. Um, I'd be amazed to know which RME. Have you got a few RME products and have you used them for a? Yes. Yeah, so uh, we have I have the. UFX two and UFX one. I mean the first one as well, and then um, a Babyface Pro, um, uh, and uh, no, that's it. Actually, those three. Yeah, amazing. And it sounds like you've been using them for a while, have you? Yeah, I mean, I used different you know, uh, models before it just, it's, they sound extremely good and they are very fast as well. You can get very low latency with them. So, um, and 
I'm now planning, I have a sort of new, um, I'll be setting up a new studio in Shoreditch, a much, much, much bigger space, you know, where we're going to mm. use uh, networked audio as well. And RME are quite, um, you know, sorted for this now. So I think I'll be going down that route for, for the bigger uh, setup as well. Amazing. Well, Dominic, before I let you go, I'd love to hear what you've got coming up. And then and then finally, while the red carpet's out, it'd be great to hear if there's any projects from your CV that you've been really proud of and that you'd love for people to go and check out that they might not have come across before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I'd, currently I'm working on um, uh, Baptiste series two. So this is um, mm. Baptiste is a spin-off of the missing and yeah. it also stars Checky Cario. So, so that um, I'm about, I'm about halfway through that at the moment. So this will maybe go out in the UK in this summer and then it'll be in, in on out on, uh, uh, I don't know where it's on in the States. It's BBC America or PBS. I can't remember. I think it's on mm. out on PBS. Um, and then I'm working on a new project, which though I'm working on it, but I I think I'm probably not allowed to talk about it yet. So, mm-hmm. but it's a it's really I wish I could because it's really exciting and it's set on the other filmed the other side of the world as well, and it's a it's a sort of big time thriller. Um, so that that will uh, will probably hit the screens. Uh, late this year or early next year wonderful um and yeah were there any of your older products that really stand out for you and you'd love for people to get to check out as well at all um well you know i don't know i don't think too much about kind of what's happened in the past really Mm. um um uh, but you know there there are always it's um I'm just looking at, at my my list of things actually. So, um, oh well, you know, there is, for example, the the, the widow, um, which was mm. on, I think it was, what year before last, uh, and which was, um, I recorded some of that in in South Africa, partly, and it's got some great um, players on it, and and it's got really um, great sounds on on it. Um, and and then there is one series that some people may not have seen. It was called "The City and the City," which is um, uh, uh, which is a, a science fiction, um, and it's it's an adaptation of of a book by China Mieville, um, and it's a four part miniseries, and it's got a kind of kind of epic soundtrack. Um, and then I did with uh, Bat for Lashes um, Requiem, um, which is a, a kind of horror six-part series um, for uh, Netflix and BBC. Um, and so Natasha, you know, from Bat for Lashes and, and me, kind of we camped out in my studio for a while and did this sort of slightly gothic vocal based uh atmospheric synth stuff which was a lot of fun to do oh amazing i didn't know she dabbled in films so that's really cool um oh dominic thanks so much it's been great to talk to you and yeah i really appreciate the time thank you 
No problem. Thanks, Adam. Yeah. Uh, cheers, Dominic. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.